Hey, good morning. Welcome to Westbridge Church. My name is Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's awesome to have you with us. I want to say hello to everybody joining us online. Thanks for joining us through that venue. And if you're in a parent viewing room, thanks for participating there. That's a great option if you have small children you prefer to keep with you during the service. This video you just saw, uh, it was from a team that we had last week in Eswatini. And Eswatini is a small country uh, just southeast of um, South Africa. And we have a partner there called uh, Children's Cup. Children's Cup has locations, uh, several locations around the world, but one of them is Eswatini. And every single month, we take a percentage of what comes into Westbridge Church and we send it to Children's Cup in Eswatini. And so uh, it's so fun to be able to send a team over there and say, hey, here's what your generosity is already doing in this part of the world. And we have several global partners that we do that with, as well as um, local initiatives. And I'm going to probably sneeze. Ugh. Yeah, I hate when it teases you, you know? It's like, let me have it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and so we have global partners and local partners. And here's what we do. All throughout the year, we take 10% of everything that comes into Westbridge Church, and we give it away to global partners. And then we partner with local initiatives. And uh, so anytime that we get to send a team to one of our global partners, it's just such a cool opportunity to say, man, here is what your generosity is doing around the world. Let's go and see it. And so our next opportunity to do that is coming up next Sunday is our uh, legacy offering. We do this once a year. It's a way for us to say, man, above and beyond what we regularly give, could we give towards a specific project this one weekend out of the year? And, um, and then here's the goal. We just say, would you pray about what God would have you to do to participate in that? And then the goal is this, 100% participation that all of us would just do something and whatever we feel God's asking us to do. And then whatever comes in through that offering, we give 100% of that away. And all of it this year is going towards uh, a church that we're helping to build in Sucre, Colombia. It's a community in Colombia through Compassion International. And then again, uh, we'll be able to send teams to this church that we've built uh, where they're helping kids with education and food and uh, water and uh, being a part of the church. And then from there, we have the opportunity to sponsor kids through Compassion International. So the next time that we go on a, send a global team to Colombia, uh, we can go to the church that we built and uh, visit some of the kids that we're sponsoring. And it's just a cool opportunity. And so uh, that's coming up next week. Pray about that. Just say, God, what would you have me do? How could I participate? And then... Uh, Tonight, we're back here, water baptism. I know it was mentioned in the video, but I got to say it, it is not too late to sign up. And uh, we have so many people getting baptized. We're going to celebrate that this evening. It's going to be so much fun. So if you've got questions about that, please come and talk to me afterwards or find a staff member. We'd love to walk you through any questions that you might have. Now, uh, we are continuing this series, The New You. Uh, and we've been walking through this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to people in Ephesus uh, in the first century. And he's walking with them about like, man, here, here's... All that God has done for you, this is the vertical. And we said the first half of this letter is all vertical. Everything God has done for us. And then halfway through, Paul shifts and goes horizontal and says, therefore, in light of the vertical, in light of all that God has done for us, here then is how you ought to live with one another. This is what it looks like to live that out. Uh, this last week, I was talking to my brother. He's uh, three years younger than me. He lives in Wyoming. Uh, he's got five kids. And we were talking on the phone and he said, man, I went, uh, I was walking through the dining room the other day and there was water pouring out of the chandelier in our dining room. And he went, what in the world? And so he ran upstairs and he runs into the bathroom, which happens to be directly over the dining room. And uh, he finds his seven-year-old, my nephew, just in the bathtub having the time of his life. 
He said he had the water running and he was like swimming back and forth and like goggles and, you know, floaties, the whole nine, right? Rubber ducky, everything. And the water is just gushing out of the tub and it, and it had built up to the point that it's trickling down the opening of the chandelier into the dining room. And he's just like, yeah, you can't do this. And it just cracked me up because I can picture my nephew doing this, right? And uh, sometimes we get so focused on our own lives, sometimes we get so caught up in our own agenda and what we're doing that we don't realize the consequence and the tidal wave that we're making. And uh, so the Apostle Paul urges followers of Jesus not to live thoughtlessly. He says this last week. If you missed last week, you can watch any of the previous weeks online. But he says, don't live thoughtlessly. That's foolish. You'll just kind of end up in places you didn't want to end up. But instead, live with wisdom. Make the most of every opportunity you've been given. And now, he comes out of those verses and he turns his attention to some of our major relationships. He begins to talk about marriage. He begins to talk about parenting. He begins to talk about uh, our life at work and those relationships and how we handle our jobs and the people with whom and for whom we work. And in all honesty, these could be three different messages. In fact, these could be three different series. We could do a whole series on parenting and a whole series on marriage and a whole series on work, and we have in the past. But in the context of these verses, I want us to look at these under this umbrella of how uh, the work of Jesus, the vertical, all that God has done for us is going to impact each of these areas of our lives. And so here's what I'm going to challenge each of us with today. We're going to talk about marriage. We're going to talk about parenting. We're going to talk about our work life, and we're going to do it all in the next 25 minutes. And my hope is that you could just pull one thing. This is not going to be like a comprehensive. This is under this umbrella that Paul is talking about. How do we take what God's given to us and use that to impact these specific areas of our lives? And so my hope and my prayer is after today, you could take one thing, pull out one thing from one of these areas and go, this is something I can put into practice today that will either impact my marriage or impact my parenting or impact the way that I uh, view my work life. And so we're going to start with this verse. Uh, Paul starts this next section. He says, don't, don't live thoughtlessly. But use wisdom. Make the most of every opportunity. And then he goes into the next verse and he says this, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, stop right there before we continue. This often gets lumped together with the rest of what we're going to read. Wives, submit to husbands. Husbands, love your wives. And all this oftentimes in sort of church world gets lumped together. In fact, in most Bibles, it will have a, a subheading or, or right above this that says something like uh, Christian marriages or, uh, you know, uh, biblical marriage or, or some kind of uh, subheading like that. And different translations use different language. But the reality is, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, has more to do with all of our relationships than simply our marriage relationships. It is, it's the umbrella under which everything else Paul is going to say hinges. It's, it's the thing that, that everything else hangs on. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, he applies it to marriage, then he applies it to parenting, then he applies it to our work life. But it all comes out of this one verse. Because of what God has done for us, because of our reverence for Christ, because of the vertical, this then is how you do marriage. This then is how you do parenting. This then is how you handle your work life. And so that's the context that we're to see this in. And then we're going to read these verses, and there's some things, there's some words in here that for some of us are going to be really triggering. Hang in here with me. When we get to the end, we'll walk back through it together. Here we go. Further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. We'll come back to that, I promise. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He's the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands and everything. 
For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot of wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So much going on there, right? So let's walk through this together. God's mission is not to create a hierarchy in marriage. That's not God's mission. That's not his goal. His goal is to redeem marriage and restore the relationship to what he intended it to be. And I love the language Paul says that he uses. He says, it is, it's a mystery. And it is a mystery, isn't it? Marriage is a mystery. But Paul says, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. The relationship that Jesus has with the church is, is a model for us in how we're to live in marriage. And Paul says, it's like in your marriage, your marriage relationship is intended to be this daily reminder of how Jesus interacts with his bride, the church. And then Paul gives some examples and, and gives us some practical ways to live that out in our own lives. And so he says this, practice mutual submission. This is the dynamic that if you want to thrive in marriage, now we could talk about a hundred different practical ways that this looks and we could go through and we could do a six-week series on this, I'm telling you. But if we just got this one practice right and saw everything that we do through this one lens, this could be a game changer in your marriage relationship. We don't, we don't typically like the word submission because uh, it's been so badly misinterpreted, so badly abused. We bristle at the mention of submission. But mutual submission is the most powerful relational dynamic that you can experience. And the word submission is really, uh, it means to defer. It doesn't mean blind obedience. It doesn't mean you have authority over me and I must obey you and everything that you say. That's not at all what it means. And this verse gets so taken out of context. In fact, uh, verse 22 says, wives submit to your husbands. But you cannot read verse 22 if you don't first read verse 21, because in the original Greek, the word submit does not show up in verse 22. It's inferred based on the previous verse. It would be like me saying, I'm going to go to the grocery store. Would you like to go with me? I don't have to say, would you like to go with me to the grocery store? It's just inferred because I just said it. But you, if I just came to you and said, hey, do you want to go with me? You'd say, well, where are we going? You got to know the previous statement to have context. Verse 22 is in the context of what Paul's saying. Out of reverence for Christ, you are to submit to one another. Out of reverence to Christ, you are to defer to one another. You are to put the needs and the desires and the preferences of the other ahead of your own. And you do that not based on their merits. You do that out of your reverence for Christ. Because of what Jesus has done for you, you are to extend that courtesy to the person that you're married to. And if they extend that same courtesy back to you, what happens is this mutual submission. They go together, hand in hand. Wives, submit to your husbands. That gets so taken out of context, doesn't it? It's like, I've heard this verse uh, in, in so, many, so many different contexts, so many different ways, and churches misinterpret this and abuse it. 
And doesn't that mean, wives, there's this hierarchy and your husband is the head of the household and you better obey him and you better submit to him and you better do what he says. In fact, there's a lot of marriage vows that say this, where uh, you're reciting vows back and forth. It's like to love and to cherish, for better or for worse. Uh, and then uh, there's, there's a set of vows that says to honor and obey. And it's only in her vows and never in his. And when we were getting married, we're coming up on our 25th wedding anniversary. When we were getting married, my wife said, nope, get that out of there. <laughs> She's like, I'm not saying that. And I'm like, hey, I'm with you. Oh, oh. We're on the same page here. Submission is not blind obedience. Submission is not you're in charge because you're the husband and you make the decisions and I follow because I'm the wife and I have to submit to you. And when we hear this, it gets so taken out of context, we immediately think of all the men who are not worth submitting to. And uh, just in case you're wondering, I did a survey and the answer is 100%. (laughs) Submission is mutual. It's a It's to defer, it's to put their needs ahead of my own. I'm here for you and you're here for me. I'm gonna put you first and you're gonna put me first. It's a race to the back of the line. I'm gonna do everything I can to support you and to be your biggest cheerleader and to maximize everything that God has created you to be. And you're gonna do the same for me. But I'm not here for you because you're here for me and I'm not here for you so that you'll be here for me. I'm here for you and I'm cheering you on and I'm gonna maximize your potential. I'm gonna do everything I can to help you become everything God's created you to be because of what God has done for me. Not based on you, not based on your merits, but because this is what God did for me. And then Paul continues. He says, husbands, this is what it looks like for you. Husbands, love your wives. No, enough said. Right, that that sounds so easy. Oh, hold on, he says, I want you to love your wives the way that Jesus loved the church. What did Jesus do for the church? Uh, He died for her. So guys, that's all you gotta do. In other words, Paul says this, in the context of what he's saying, he's saying, Jesus was willing to sacrifice himself for the good and the benefit of his bride, the church. So men, husbands, you are to love your wives the way that Christ loved the church. You are to be the first one to lay down your preferences. You are to be the first one to sacrifice. You are to be the first one to say, man, I'm going to set aside my preferences for your benefit. And husbands, that's what we're called to do. And we hear that Jesus is the head of the church. And again, this gets so misinterpreted and twisted. It's like the head of the house, which means, all right, you make the decisions and your wife must obey. And the the word head in this context does not mean boss. In fact, when we say the head of a company or the head of the army, we think of the person in charge. We think of a hierarchy. In the Greek language, the head of the army would have been the first soldier into battle. It's the tip of the spear. It's not referring to a position of authority. It's referring to the order of engagement. The head is the one that is the tip of the spear. It's the one that initiates. In Ephesians, Paul is reminding us, men, Jesus is the head of the church, meaning he moved in our direction first. As the church, when we were broken, he moved in our direction. He, he laid aside his preferences, and we are tasked with doing the same thing. If we're truly interpreting these verses correctly, men, lead the way in submission and in laying down your life and your preferences for the sake of your wife. That's how this verse reads. What's amazing about this is, through our modern lens, this is actually kind of like, we hear wives submit to your husbands, and we kind of gasp because we see it through kind of a 21st century feminist movement kind of lens, and we go, wives submit to your husbands, and we misinterpret it, and we get all bent out of shape, and we're like, "Uh, nope, we're equals. 
And first of all, that isn't what Paul was saying. He's saying we're equals. But what's interesting is in their context, women had no rights. Women had no legal standing. Women had no, uh, they were basically treated like property. And so what, what would have been very shocking for them would have been the other part. Husbands, lead the way in laying down your life for your wife. They would have been like, oh, what? That's crazy. And in both instances, Paul's just saying this. Look, mutual submission is the most powerful relational dynamic you can experience. When both people are determined to put the other person first, it's incredible what can happen. And so he says, husbands, that means you love your wives. You're the first one to lay down. You, you, you show her how much she means to you. And then he says this, wives, respect your husbands. Now, this is interesting. Do you know why Paul uses the word respect for men? It's because men are naturally drawn to environments where they feel respected. Now, you tell a man that, hey, so-and-so doesn't love you. He's like, yeah, I don't care. But you say, so-and-so doesn't respect you? Oh, them's fighting words. That's what road rage is all about, right? It's not because the person in the other car doesn't love me. It's because they disrespected me. It was my turn to merge. Well, what if I'm married to a man who doesn't deserve my respect? I'll respect him when he's earned it. Well, that's why this section starts off with mutual submission. It isn't based on the merits of whether he's earned it or not. It's based on your reverence for Christ. Because of what Christ has done for you, this is how you are to treat your wife. This is how you're to treat your husband. And let's be honest, we've all been in situations where we gave respect to someone simply based on the position they were in and not because they deserved it relationally with us. If you've ever been in a courtroom, you show respect to the judge simply because of where they sit. If you've ever been pulled over by a police officer, you pray and then you show respect <laughs> based on who they are. And Paul's saying this, just based on the fact that he's your husband, you show respect to him. It's not based on the merits. It's not because he's earned it. It's not because he deserves it. It's because of what Jesus has done for you, that you are to respect your husbands. And here's what's amazing. This is ex extremely practical when you think about it. Because of the way men are wired. Now, again, this is a very broad generalization, but generalizations are generally true. That's why they're generalizations, right? Most men are drawn to environments where they feel respected. And if you will respect him, even if you don't feel he's deserved it, even if you don't feel he's earned it, he will be drawn to that environment. You will call things out of him that you've never seen before. So you want your marriage to thrive? Again, we could talk for weeks and weeks about this. But it, here's this very, very simple relational practice that Paul gives. Practice mutual submission. That means, men, you lead the way, and you love her. And you sacrifice your preferences and your desires and your needs for hers. And women, you respect your husband. And when you both do that, it's like you're putting the needs and the desires of your mate ahead of your own. And it creates this incredible dynamic in that relationship. And then Paul says, now, I, wanna, I want you to see a whole new way of seeing your parenting. So he shifts gears. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is what it looks like in your marriage relationship. This is what it looks like with husbands and wives. And then he says, now this is what it looks like with kids and parents. He starts talking to kids. He says, children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord for this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you and you will have a long life on the earth. Parents, now he talks to parents, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. So Paul goes into this next section. He continues this train of thought. 
First, he talks about marriage relationships and how God's grace should impact that very important relationship in our life. And then he starts to talk about parents and kids and how God's grace ought to impact this relationship and this area of our lives. And and here's kind of the big takeaway from this section. He says this, work to develop and maintain influence. If you are a parent, your goal is not control. Your goal is not compliance. Your goal is influence. What you want is you want to develop and maintain influence in the lives of your kids. And here's why. As your children grow older, the control that you can exert over them becomes less and less. I love how like social media pops up different memories. And I had a memory pop up yesterday from 14 years ago. My son, who is 15, was one year old. And I'm like, oh, I remember that. I, could, I had all the control in the world. I could pick him up, put him in the car seat. Whatever I needed him to do, I made him do it. And now he can pick me up and put me in a car seat. It's amazing. And so there has to be a shift. I can't control him physically. So now something has to shift. Something has to change. My goal is to retain influence. And here's why that's so important. The older our kids get, the more critical our influence becomes in their lives. There is very little weight to the decisions that they make when they're four years old about Should I watch Paw Patrol or Bluey? (laughs) What a decision. But as they get older, you know this. The decisions that they make carry so much more weight. When they're 16 and 17 and 18 and 19 and 20, the decisions that they make are the decisions that will set them up for adulthood. They're the decisions that will follow them into their adult lives for good or bad. They're the decisions that will create a foundation for them to live a life well-lived. Or they're the decisions that could potentially scar them. See, they need our influence when they're choosing how and why to date and who to date and how to deal with sexual temptation and what to do for a career. And, And they need our influence when they're choosing who to marry and how to deal with issues of ethics and integrity and how to handle themselves in specific situations. That's when they need our influence the most. And what we must consider as parents is that compliance is not the same as influence. And oftentimes I see this, especially when our kids are younger, we just, we just want them to do what we want them to do. Like, just do what I said, because I'm your dad and I said so. And I just can't explain to you. Just like, trust me, just do it. And, and we can get them to do what we want them to do. But over time, if we give up influence in the process, then we're losing what we ultimately want in their life. In fact, there's like this, there's like this fulcrum, there's this, there's this spectrum of like when they're younger, it's all control, right? You're one years old, uh, one year old, I just have to keep you alive. So I'm going to feed you, I'm going to clothe you. Everything is all my control. There's very little influence. We aren't reasoning things out at that point. But as they get older, we have to shift from exerting control and compliance to using influence. And here's, what I've, here's where I've seen parenting really go off the rails is when Kids get to that age where we should be influencing them to make the right decision, and they're, they're, they're following our instruction because they actually trust us. And instead, I see parents go, no, I'm going to use control, and I'm going to make you comply. And guess what? You can do that, and you'll get compliance, and you will lose influence. You can get compliance, and, and they might comply, and they might do what you want them to do in the moment but they can't wait to move out. And now that they're making all the weightiest decisions that they're making, you don't have influence in their life. 
Control and influence are two different ends of the spectrum. And so Paul says this, hey, don't exasperate your kids. Don't provoke them with the way that you treat them. Instead, bring them up with the instruction, with the discipline that comes from God. This doesn't mean Paul's not advocating for like, hey, let them do whatever they want to do. He's saying, no, you discipline them, you instruct them, but you always do it in a way that you don't give up influence in the process. When they grow older, they depend on you for every little, when they're younger, they depend on you for every little thing, but as you get older, they got to shift to influence. Now, at the end of the day, that's what you want the most. So you got to ask yourself, how much is a momentary compliance worth if it costs me influence in the long run. And for, for us to understand how this works in the lives of our kids, it's critical for us to understand the stage that they're in. I treat my kids differently. I love them the same, but I treat them differently. There's a reason my 17-year-old drives, my nine-year-old doesn't. I'm not trying to be the fairest parent in the land. I'm trying to prepare them for life. And because that's the goal, here's, here's the other advice that Paul gives us. He says this, lead with the end result in mind. Hey, parents, don't exasperate your kids. Don't provoke them to anger because at the end, that's not going to give you the end result you want. The end result you want is influence. So if that's what you want, you got to parent with the end result in mind. Every moment when they're four, when they're six, when they're eight, when they're 12, when they're 15, how can I help guide them? How can I give them discipline and instruction? But how can I do it in a way that it gets us to the end result where it's not just, okay, you complied in the moment and I win that battle but I actually get to where I want to go in my parenting. Let, let me give you something that uh, the, has been the lens for, for my wife and I, and this isn't original with us. We heard it 20 years ago and we just adopted it and went, this is going to be the parenting lens. This is the end result we want with our kids. We're going to discipline them. We're going to instruct them. But if anything that we do puts either one of these two things in jeopardy, then we don't do it. Number one, we want our kids to transfer their dependence from us to Jesus. Early on, they're dependent on us for everything, right? We dress them, feed them. You know, like we, they, they live in our house. Uh, they don't pay rent. I mean, it's unbelievable. <laughs> they're just totally dependent on us. But somewhere along the way, we want them to make a shift in their own minds and in their own hearts where they go, man, you guys did all that for us, but it, not just because we're your kids. Like, we actually understand that you're trusting in Jesus with your life. Hey, mom, hey, dad. We see how you handle your finances. We see how you handle the way that you deal with people. We see what you give your life to. We see what you devote your life. And, and we've been dependent on you, but as we reach adulthood and start to live our own lives, we actually can't just be dependent on you as mom and dad. We have to be dependent on something bigger than that. And so we're going to transfer our dependence from you to Jesus. We want them to, to know that when they become adults, this is, this is their mentality. God created me. God loves me. And so I can trust him with my life. Anything that puts that in jeopardy, no matter what it is, if it puts that end result in jeopardy, that's not worth it. The other thing for us is this, and this is just a personal one, and maybe you want to come up with your own or maybe you want to adopt these. We just said this. We want our kids to want to be with us and be with each other when they no longer have to be. When they become adults, like, like you know, some of, some of our younger kids have to be with us. They don't have a choice. But our older kids... It's like, well, you don't have to be with us. When you move out, when, when you get married, when you're on your own, like, we want you to still want to be with us when you no longer have to be with us. And we want you to want to be with each other when you no longer have to be. And so as we're handing out consequences, as we're dealing with 
growing up and testing boundaries and all these things, we've got to navigate that, navigate that in a way that says, okay, we're not going to put that at jeopardy. We don't want to get to the point where they don't want to be around us or they don't want to be around their siblings. And so we just said, this is it. Transfer dependence from, them, from us as mom and dad to Jesus and make them want to be with us and each other when they no longer have to be. Those are the goals. And anything that sacrifices those two things is not worth it for us. Those are the goals. That's the end result that we want to see with our kids. And Paul would say, man, parent with the end in mind. Don't, don't provoke your kids. Don't exasperate them by the way that you treat them, but just bring them up with the discipline that comes from the Lord. And then he, he does talk to children as well. He says, children, honor your parents. So if you're here in the room today, you're 18 or under, and you live at home with your parents, honor your mom and dad. And if you're 18 and over, and you still live at home, honor your mom and dad. And if you're 18 or over, and you don't live at home, guess what? Honor your mom and dad. I'm 43 years old. There is no qualification in these verses. There's no exception clause that says, hey, once you're over the hill, you can drop that verse. No matter how old you get, honor your mom and dad. And part of honoring means that you follow the rules of the house while you live with them. And it means that you trust that they have your best interest at heart. And you do what they ask you to do when you live with them, even if you don't understand why. Let me tell you something. As a teenager, I look back at some of the rules my parents had. And they had so many rules when I was a teenager. So many rules. And I look back when I was in my 20s, when I started having my own kids, and I went, oh, I see what you were doing there. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that saved me from getting in a whole lot of trouble that I know I would have got myself into. I didn't see it at the time. That means when you live at home with your parents, you trust that they have your best interest at heart, that they're trying to protect you because they love you. That means that's what it looks like to honor your parents. That means when you're out of their house and you have mom and dad and you're in your 40s and you're in your 50s and you're, you're fortunate enough to still have your parents and they say something crazy to you, you just nod and smile and you respect them and you honor them. Because there's no exception clause. Honor your parents. Paul says it's a new way to see marriage. Based on what God's done for you, this is how you live in marriage. There's a new way to see parenting. Based on what God's done for you, here's how you treat your parents. Here's how you treat your kids. And then he says, a new way to see your work life. Now, quick note here. Paul is going to talk next to slaves and masters. So here's where we get kind of hung up. Anytime we hear the word masters and slaves, we hear the term slavery, we immediately, because we're 21st century Americans, we immediately go to uh, what happened in, in the beginning of the United States of America. We, we, we look at the slave trade. We look at uh, slavery as being uh, racially driven. Uh, we look at it as being people being kidnapped from their country, sold, and all of those things. Here's what I can tell you. Everything in the scriptures stands against that. What we know as slavery from the history of the United States of America, everything in the scriptures, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, who is the pastor in Ephesus, a separate letter from Ephesians, writes a separate letter specifically to Timothy, condemns the slave trade, condemns that whole process. What Paul is talking about here is not what we've come to think of as slavery, right? Paul is talking about in the Roman Empire, about six million people that live in the Roman Empire during Paul's day, and at least a third of them are slaves. 
And the way that that worked was, uh, if I wanted to buy a house but I couldn't afford to purchase a house, I could actually commit myself to be a slave in your house for a certain period of time, and I would sign that over to you, and then at the end of my time, uh, I would earn enough to purchase that house. I would give myself as collateral. This is really indentured servanthood. Uh, if I owed you a, a large amount of money that I couldn't pay, and I, I, rather than go to prison, I would say, I'm going to work for you for five years. I'm going to work for you for 10 years for free. And then at the end of that time, my debt is cleared. If I couldn't pay taxes, I could enter into uh, indentured servanthood. And so it's very, very different than the way that we've come to think about it. The reality is all through the scriptures, we're reminded we've been made new. And you're a part of a new society of new use where everyone is precious and everyone is equal in God's eyes. And so a much better way to think about this, Paul's talking to employees and employers, those who are masters and those who are voluntary slaves who said, I'm going to work for you for a certain period of time. This is really the dynamic that Paul is speaking to. And so when he writes this, keep that in mind. And he goes into these next verses and he says this, slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. You could say, employees, obey your employers with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven and he has no favorites. And there's not just semantics or verbiage. It's a completely different perspective. And Paul says, man, what if you chose to recognize whatever job you have, God has a purpose for you there. That, that you are on assignment from God. That means for those of us who are unemployed. That means for those of us who are students, for those of us who are retired, for those of us who are between jobs, for those of us who are stay-at-home moms. That's your job. That's your assignment from God during this season. And notice Paul does not tell the slaves, hey, get together and, and have a big uprising and overthrow your masters and claim your freedom. Because slavery is an acceptable part of their society, the way that they understood slavery. And he isn't talking about a socioeconomic policy that everyone should adopt. He is talking about how to respond to the situation that you find yourself in. How do I respond appropriately? He says to the slaves, serve your masters as if you were serving Christ himself. And so here's the principle that we pull from this. Paul says this, how we work is based on who we work for. How we do our work is based on who we're working for. Whenever you find, wherever you find yourself on the job spectrum, Paul says, work as if God himself assigned you that job, because he did. You're on assignment from God. Be enthusiastic. Work, your work has significance because that is where God assigned you. You're like, yeah, but look what I do, man. I mean, uh, I sell stuff. I fix cell phones. I fix computers, I build roads, I hold signs while other people build roads. I, I, I hold a sign dressed as a giant cell phone outside a Verizon store hoping my friends don't recognize me. Why would I put my heart into that? My job isn't worth putting my heart into. Look who I work for. And Paul says, I want you to work as if God is your boss. Now, we want to raise our hands and we want to ask for a free pass until we realize he's talking to masters and slaves and everybody in between. Paul says, we do our best at work all the time, not just when our employers are watching. Work with enthusiasm as though you're working for God and not just for people. If you're truly working as if God is your boss, then what you do will never be as important as how you do it. In fact, he would say this, we tend to get focused on the what 
and the where, but God measures success completely differently. God is looking at the how. We tend to be more focused on what's happening on the job. God is more focused on what is happening in us. Because way more important than what you do is who you're becoming. And what would it look like for you if tomorrow, for one day you went to, look, you went to work and you just did your best with all your heart, not for your boss, but for God? And then uh, Paul goes on to give us an incredible incentive for why we should live our lives this way. He says, by the way, uh, how we work has eternal implications. He says, don't you know God's going to reward you? He will reward you if you live your life this way. Don't you know God will reward you? And he doesn't say what that reward is. He doesn't say like, oh, you're going to get rich. That's how we tend to think of rewards. The reward is internal of going, man, I, no matter what my employer has on me or says about me or if I like them or what, I did my absolute best today. And I did it not unto the company, not unto my employer, but I did it unto God. Paul says, don't you know God rewards that? And someday, all of us are going to die. Wah, wah. Thanks, Debbie Downer. Every study for the last several thousand years has shown that the human mortality rate hovering right around 100%, give or take nothing. And the truth is, someday we'll all take our last breath here on earth. And it will be the end of your body, but it will not be the end of you. My concern is that some of us live like that's never going to happen. And we live like all there is to this life is this life. But all through the scriptures, we're reminded how you live your life, including how you handle whatever assignment you currently have, has eternal implications. There, there's something that hangs in the balance. And God will reward you. And Paul's not clear on that. Jesus isn't very clear on that. Just that doing the right thing for the right reason has its own rewards. And so he would say this, both employer and employee, practice integrity. Do you know what integrity means? We often don't get this, like it's kind of a word that gets thrown around, but integrity literally means for something to be integrated. When something is pulling apart or falling apart, when, when the fibers are coming apart, you know what it's doing? It's no longer integrated, or we would say it's disintegrated or disintegrating. When something is disintegrating, that means it's just being pulled apart. But when something is integrated fully together, that means it has integrity. It is integrated. And here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Let your life be integrated. Work with integrity. Don't commute between your spiritual life and your work life. Like, some of us come in here on weekends and we worship God and we're like, ah, oh, I do the spiritual thing. I love the church thing. And then we get to work and it's like, whoa, God, you're not quite welcome here. We do things a little different around here, all right? Can't wear sandals in the office, all right? The work of the church is not just what we do here. The work of the church is what all of us do out there because the church is not a building. You and I are the church. We're the hands and feet of Jesus in a broken world. And if what Paul says is true, you're doing your work as if God is your boss and there's no need to compartmentalize your work life from the rest of your life. Integrity means that your whole life is integrated together. You were given an assignment because you were created in the image of a creative God and a working God. I love the way Martin Luther says it. He says this, the maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Not because she might sing a Christian hymn while she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. And the Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. When you do your best, when you, when you take whatever job, whatever assignment God's given you, and you are faithful and you do it with integrity, 
It honors God and it honors the people around you. See, you don't have to feel like your whole identity is wrapped up in your job and you don't have to loathe your job. If you work enthusiastically with integrity as unto the Lord, no matter what assignment you find yourself on, you can find fulfillment because of what God is doing in you. Now, here's where all of this is predicated. Here's the final thought. Paul would say this. The baseline isn't the other person. It's Jesus. Husband, wife, the baseline for how you treat each other isn't the other person. It's Jesus. Parents, kids, the baseline for how you treat each other isn't the other person. It's Jesus. Employer, employee, coworker, the baseline for how you treat each other isn't the other person. It's Jesus. The vertical is what informs the horizontal. The way Jesus has treated you is how you are to treat somebody else. Not because they've earned it, not because they've deserved it, not because of their merits, because of what Jesus has done for you. So think about the flow of this whole letter. Paul says in chapter one, you have been chosen. You've been adopted into God's family. He is making you new. Chapter two, he says, and that's all because of God's grace. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. But you are responsible to respond to God's grace. Chapter three, he says, now I'm not just making you new. I'm making the you next to you new. And now you're a whole new society of new yous. They're all the living, breathing, walking temples of God. God's spirit is in you. And so chapter four, he says, that means you strive for unity. This is how you live with each other. This is what it looks like to live together in light of all that God has done for you, the vertical. Here's how you live in unity, horizontal. And that means in the areas of life, you must take off the old, rethink things and put on the new. It's a new way of living. And then he gets to chapter five and he says, in light of all that, don't live thoughtlessly. Don't just wander around aimlessly. You're gonna end up in some places you don't wanna end up, but be wise. Make the most of every opportunity. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And do this in your marriage and do this in your parenting and do this with your parents and do this with your coworkers and your employer and your employees. It's about putting the needs of others ahead of your own, doing for others what Jesus has done for us. In your marriage, submit to one another. In your parenting, in your family relationships, honor your mother and father. Lead with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Lead with the end result in mind. In your workplace, work is under God. After all, there's more to this life than this life. And, and, and working with faithfulness and integrity brings honor to God and honor to others. Every one of these things hangs on this one idea. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And it comes from the one thing that Jesus told his disciples before he left this earth. He said this, just as I have loved you, you should love each other. The way that you're to act with other people is you take your cues from me, Jesus would say. As I have loved you, you're to love each other. And this is how Jesus loves us. He came into this world. He took on flesh and bone. And he said, this is, this is what it looks like to be in right relationship with God and right relationship with each other. He gave us that example. He gave us that model. And then to lead the way in sacrifice, he allowed himself to be put to death. His body was laid in a tomb. And according to multiple eyewitness accounts, Jesus rose from the dead. So many people saw him. He confirmed that there is more to this life than this life. That he's overcome death and he's invited us to be a part of his family. And if you've never said yes to that, I wanna invite you. You can just agree in your heart with this simple prayer as we close. God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times I've walked away from you and I'm so grateful that you never walk away from me. And so I wanna say yes to your invitation. Make me your son, make me your daughter and help me to put my trust in you and to follow you as best as I know how from this moment on. And God, for every one of us, in our marriage relationships, in our parenting relationships, our relationships with our parents, our relationships with employers and employees and coworkers, 
May we remember the words of Jesus. As I have loved you, you should love one another. And God, let us make that the model. And as we do that, we pray that our love and our grace would so permeate our marriages and our homes and our families that people would look and they'd go, man, there's something different there. That the way that we behave towards others would point people to you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.